Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you don't know me, I'm Ron Young. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Jacob's Well. Um, Pastor Dan is off. The, we had Presbytery yesterday. I was um, not there because I'm on sabbatical, which I was kind of grateful. But um, there was some good stuff going on yesterday. Um, our daughter church, uh, All Saints, became particularized. Yay! And their daughter church, or then um, Emmaus Road, who was our daughter church, um, their daughter church, Cornerstone, was particularized, right? Livingstone. Livingstone, not Cornerstone. Livingstone became, yeah, so like a, we had a daughter and a granddaughter church, both approved. approved I mean, whatever. So just so you know, Tim is like, the guy that records stuff all the time. He's the detail, whatever. Anyways, it was good stuff yesterday. I'm teasing Tim. Anyway, so I'm grateful to be here. Um, this morning I had to, I actually changed a little bit of my sermon. I kind of jumbled it around and, um, and, and may do. And, and then Wendy says to me, oh, Scott Jansen said it was a really good sermon. I said, really? And he said, yeah, it's about the shortest I've ever heard Ron preach. So... So you're going to have to thank Scott Jansen for this long sermon coming up, so I'm teasing. First question, um, how do you know when you're in trouble? How do you know when you're in trouble? Mike Mako laughed, hit a source, no, I'm just kidding. I, I know you hear, the, you hear the, uh, the voice, right, the tone, you sometimes hear, uh, hey, Ron, can we talk? I need, you know, could I see you and we need to talk? That's usually something's odd. Sometimes you're not sure. When I was a kid, it was very obvious. If my parents used my middle name, Ronald William, I knew I was in trouble. Uh, my, my brothers and I had this game where we would uh, play ball in the house when we weren't supposed to, but our parents were gone. And it was really fun to run down the hall into my parents' room, and one of us would toss the ball in the air, and the, and the other would dive with their you know, mitt on across their king-size bed to grab the ball, you know, just to be the hero, you know, yay. And uh, one time I remember jumping, I grabbed the ball and uh, bounced on the bed and the, the ball came out and hit my parents' window, um, cracking it. And, and my brother and I were, oh no, we're in trouble. We thought, okay, what's the best thing to do here? And my brother, who was the schemer, said, I know, let's go outside and we'll play ball outside. And when mom and dad come, we'll make sure they throw the ball out the window. Oh, that's a great idea, right? So we, we kind of do this thing. By the way, kids, now your parents know you can't get away with this. My, my, um, but so we, 
you know, we do, we do this, oh, no, oh, we cracked the window, oh, sorry, oh, well, you know, it's an accident. And I remember my dad goes and goes to the store and gets a pane of glass, and this is when I was a kid, so you had a, just a pane of glass. So he, he takes the glazing off, and he's going to replace it, and he notices, oh, wait a minute, this is broken from the inside. And I just remember hearing those words from my dad's mouth. <clears throat> uh, boys, uh, I'd like you to come in here. And like, oh, he never talked like that unless we were in trouble. Ellie says that when, I, when she's in trouble, I start um, talking slowly and more deliberately. And it's a little scary. Um, the girls in my seventh grade class recognize that a lot quicker than the boys. So a lot of times what will happen in seventh grade is they're getting out of, they're doing something and I, I guess I have a look and then I talk a little slower and then the girls kind of straighten up and the boys are like, Ooh, still a little clueless. Sorry boys, seventh grade, whatever. They, um, you know, and then they'll say something and you'll see the girls quickly like, no, no, don't get them mad, don't get them mad. Well, t- today's passage, if the church in Jerusalem had a middle name, I'm pretty convinced that James would use it. Um, it, it becomes a, a pretty forceful um, message to them. And, uh, and you can see it not, you know, again, he doesn't use the middle name, but there's a, this change in imagery from peace that we saw at the end of chapter three to these images of war. Some of that warring imagery is hard to detect in the English. It's more obvious a little bit in the Greek. Um, and so since Scott, Scott Jansen said I had a short sermon, I'll go ahead and do a lot of Greek today. No, I'm just kidding. So let, let me start with uh, the introduction. Um, the, this end of chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then, we're going to, then I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. We'll pray and then um, I'm going to front load the sermon with all sorts of other stuff, and then we'll go through the outline. How's that sound? All right. So, Pastor Dan went through chapter 3, 16 through 18. Listen to it again. For well, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't that a great description of the church? Right? A harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. All right. Let's hear how James, without using the church's middle name, um, goes from here. I'll be reading four through, 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, it is, a, it is a gracious thing that we can read such words uh, to convict us. And Lord, that we who want a harvest of righteousness sown in peace, that we would like to be people who sow in peace and make peace, Lord, it is often a very difficult thing for us, and we know, God, as we read your word, it's because of our sinful desire, it's because of our friendship with the world, and Father, we, we need, Lord, to submit, we need to humble ourselves, and Father, I pray that you would help us. So Lord, I pray that as we hear more, and as I preach, um, God, you direct us, and that these things would... Uh, be implanted in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James goes off on the church uh, pretty severely. Um, and it is, uh, it is good for us to see this. What I want to do is as I said, I want to front load a little bit of the sermon and uh, talk a little bit about background and um, some of the things that he's talking about might be more clear if we had a if we had some of this background. Um, so first of all, we remember that James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is almost which is pretty much entirely a Jewish Christian audience. And um, they have understood that Christ has fulfilled the law, 
They don't need to sacrifice. There's the, the, you know, they are uh, made right with God through Christ in a sacrifice. That The Holy Spirit is within them, uh, justifying them and sanctifying them. And, and part of that means that although that the law is no longer, uh, um, it's not what saves them, the spirit within them as it sanctifies them enables them to obey God's law, the moral law, the law of Christ, right? The law can be summed up in those two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that James had such a reputation of doing this, he was known as James the Just. Now, it seems that the church here had been having some problems with uh, quarrels amongst themselves. So first I want to talk a little bit about desire. And then I also want to talk about this thing that talks about friendliness with the world and what does world and worldliness mean. First, desire. If you recall, Dan preached on, um, back in the first chapter of James, uh, it says that when we sin, it's because our desires, our, our desires are, um, entice us, right? And when it's enti- they drag us out, and eventually when they're full-blown, it leads to sin, I don't know if you remember that, but in the same passage that it goes on, it talks about every good gift is from God. So we can't blame God for our sin, but every good gift comes from God. And, and the reason why he speaks about this is because we understand that desire itself was a created thing by God and it was good. Let, let me put it this way. From, the, from Scripture, from the Jewish perspective in particular, when God made us and gave us desire, it was for our good in that if we didn't have desire, say, for food, we would starve to death. If we didn't have desire for drink, we would thirst and, and die. If we didn't have desire for sex, we wouldn't reproduce and, our, and the human race would be no more. If we didn't desire good things, our, our life would end up uh, staying you know, filthy and, you know, not so great. These kinds of desires were, were something put in us. The, the problem is, is that Satan came and tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, to go against God's word, to direct those desires towards something God said no to. So if you, if you look at... Uh, Genesis chapter 3, for instance, in verse 6, you have uh, the serpent speaking to the woman and, uh, about eating of the, the fruit that was forbidden. And in, in verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree, saw that the tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you have these three aspects of desire, a desire to satisfy their, her, her flesh, that it was good for food, a desire that it was a delightful thing, a good thing to possess, and that it could make you wise. Well, those kinds of things seem like they're decent things, right? The problem is, is that 
the serpent had been tempting, Satan her tempting her to, to, um, to desire this thing that was forbidden by God. And she, and she ate of it. And so because of that, the desires of man's heart is, are fallen. And they no longer automatically desire good things. In fact, what they do is that those desires are kind of curved in on itself. And what we desire are the things that we want and not necessarily the things God wants. By chapter 6 in Genesis... that working? Better? Better? All right. By Genesis chapter 6, you have the fact that um, the, the desires of man's heart are only evil all the time. That's the NIV. I prefer that version of that. Only evil all the time, the desires of man's heart. God wipes out mankind in the flood except for known as family. He says in Genesis chapter 9 that God is not going to flood the world again because our hearts are bent towards that evil from the time we're infants. In other words, from our time we're born, we're born in sin, and our desires go, are fallen, and punishment isn't going to change anything. I can punish my seventh graders all I want. It's not going to change their hearts. Maybe the eighth graders. I'd rather, maybe I should, I'm looking at Kendall. Um, right? But that doesn't change one's heart. God then establishes the law at Sinai. He brings this together his people and gives them the law. The law is good. The law tells us what is right and what is good. It can be a curb for evil in that once we all collectively say this is what's good and what's not good, we might not do as much bad things. But the law is powerless to change our hearts. The law can't save us. But the prophets come and tell us about the, a new time. There's going to be a new covenant where, where there's going to be a new creation a new heart, and God's spirit will be in us. And so here's James talking to the Christian church in Jerusalem and asking this question, what causes these quarrels and fights among you? If you have been saved by Christ and his sacrifice, and the Spirit of God is in you, why are you still fighting? Why is there warring? And the answer is because these desires are still in them. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. Who does that sound like? Remember, he addresses them, and I want to back this up a little bit. Remember, at the end, he's, when he's talking about quarreling again, he addresses them three times as brothers. Do you remember brothers who quarreled and ended up murdering? Cain and Abel? In a sense, James is saying, you're not acting like someone who belongs to Christ. You're acting like Cain. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
There was another brother, Esau. His brother Jacob was, was uh, foretold that he was to be the, uh, the head, that the covenant was going to go through him. Esau, the older, despised his birthright, gave it to him for a cup of soup. He coveted the thing that Jacob had, even though he despised it and gave it away. James is, in a sense, telling his church, you identify with Esau, not with Christ. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. The history of, in the Old Testament of people doing this is astounding. But I'll bring up one other set of brothers, uh, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, if you recall, is uh, thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. He acts righteously as a slave. And as a reward, he gets accused and gets sent to prison. He behaves righteously in prison, and God elevates him to the second command in Egypt. James, in talking to the church, is saying, look, you are acting not like Jacob, not like Joseph. You're acting like Cain. You're acting like Esau. You're acting like these brothers you adulterous people, what's going on? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So here's this idea of worldliness. Worldliness is, this, this, uh, is systems that sinful man has made and that perpetuate, that help us think differently about life and happiness than what God's word says. And often, the world, this system, tends to have the backing of government, societal, and economic power. It's, it's been around for a long, long time. There's nothing new under the sun. The world says to us that happiness comes from money, maybe right? Everyone knows that's not true, right? How many people have lived and died and told us that money doesn't make us happy? How many wisdom books, how many times we read it in scripture, how many times is it preached on, how many times do, have we been told money doesn't really make us happy? But what the world does is try to convince us that that's true. Does it not? And when we pursue money, for happiness, it usually doesn't make us that happy. Although, as my wife and I would sometimes say, eh, it'd be nice. Power doesn't make us happy. I think we all know that. Sexual gratification doesn't make us happy. Our world right now is trying to tell us that happy comes from following your desires, whatever they may be, and whoever says no to you is somehow evil, right? It's a big, tremendous societal powers at play. If you don't put the right icon on your Facebook account, people are going to talk bad about you, right? 
companies love this. It's a way to uh, sell products and, and, and do things. Uh, TikTok continually telling our children the same thing. If you don't know about TikTok, good for you. But, but none of that is going to make us happy. We're Christians. We know God's word. What, what's happiness? True happiness comes from what? Being aligned with God, obeying his word. We know that, don't we? What's happening deep down? Right? We know this. We know it's true. And yet, year after year, all our lives, it seems, we continue to struggle because there is a war going on for our souls. You war and struggle against these desires. And conflicts happen in the church, quarrels happen in the church, fights happen in the church because we're more interested in our desire and our fulfilling our passions rather than the will of God. But wait, there's more. Friendship the world is enmity with God. Where have we heard that before? Enmity with God. Goes back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, God's pronouncing judgment to the serpent, to Satan. Right? The seed of the woman is going to, and the serpent and its seed are going to be at war with each other. It'll be enmity between them. And the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. What's God saying? When you are friends with the world, you are not identifying with Christ, you're identifying as one of Satan's. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, we start to hear a little good news, okay? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but, gives, but he gives more grace? Here's where this is coming from. If you remember back in the Ten Commandments, what does it say? You're not, you know, don't have other gods before him. Why? Because God's jealous. He has called his people and he's jealous for us. And he has put his Holy Spirit in us. We belong to him. We belong to him and God's not going to rest. He's going to continue to fight for his own which is you and me. God is going to fight because your, his spirit is in you for his own. Your warring isn't just with your desires. Sometimes your warring is with God himself because he's not going to give up on you. I remember sitting down with a newer believer and they were struggling because of sin in their life. I said, Ron, I don't think I'm 
I don't think I'm saved. Well, why don't you think you're saved? Well, I keep struggling with this sin, and sometimes I, I, I succumb. And I go, and, and then what do you do? Well, I, I ask for forgiveness. I, you know, I try to do it, but I, I, this struggle's not going away. I asked him, I said, you know, before you were a Christian, did you struggle with this? And the answer was no, because I loved doing it. Well, what changed? What changed from that person loving his sin to the point where they're struggling with sin and they can see this war within them fighting against the sin? Is that not the Holy Spirit working in his life? Because God jealously yearns for the spirit he's put in us. God is not going to give up. Your life, here's the good news, your life is going to be continual struggle because God won't give up on you. What kind of reputation would God have if he put his spirit in you and then gave up on you? And our God is a warrior. And he'll fight. Well, then what's the answer to victory? Here we are, let's be honest, right? We struggle with sinful desire and we battle the world. And sometimes the world seems overwhelming. And a lot of times, to be frank, we kind of like what the world has to offer. Sometimes we fool ourselves thinking that I could make good off of this worldly pursuit of mine. I just need to ask God to, you know, magically transform this into his will. And he keeps telling us, no, but we do it anyway. And sometimes when it doesn't come to fruition, what we do is we shake our fist at God. That's not good. That's not a good way to live. What should we do then? It says, therefore, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Remember, he gives good grace. He gives us more grace. What do you need in your life, really, to follow him? You need his grace. Maybe that's what we should be asking for. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, here we go. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So I don't like the way this sounds in English. Right? A better way to put it is surrender yourself to God. Stop fighting him. Submit sounds weak. I don't know. Okay, it's like, here we go. My dad, back many years ago, we get in trouble for breaking the window, punishment, good swats. He, I, yeah, I was bad. Don't do this ever again. Oh, so sorry, dad, so sorry, dad. I knew we were going to play ball in the house again. You know, I knew it. I'm not, I, I submitted to this spanking. I didn't necessarily bend my will. I didn't surrender to my father's will. I knew that if I could get away with that, I'd be back playing ball in the house. 
Surrender yourself, therefore, to God. Give up. Surrender to him. And resist the devil. The same word oppose and resist are, are the same. It really means stand against. God stands against the proud but gives grace to the humble. Surrender yourself to God. Stand up against the devil. In other words, go from God's enemy to a, a soldier fighting for him. Be on God's side. Right? Resist the devil sounds like, again, it's very passive. Like, what, a, what does it mean to resist the devil? Okay, I'm going to... I'll back up here or back up. No, it's, it's now in the power of the Spirit and, and surrender to God, stand up to him. And, and again, let's be frank. In your life, when you've had these such battles, did Satan ever go away when you just try to avoid him? Ever? No. It always takes a stand, does it not? Surrender to God and stand up, stand against him, and he'll flee. Then in verses 8 and um, 9, you have more of a priestly look here. Draw near to God is, is kind of the, the same kind of terminology that the high priest would uh, take the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. So surrender to him and come to him. Draw to him with repentance in mind. And he'll draw near to you. And here are the acts of, of repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourned and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Weep for your sin. This very God who sent his son to die on a cross for you, to give you his spirit, how are we treating him? Your friendship with the world is making you an enemy of his. Shouldn't that bother you? Shouldn't it bother us? Should our approach be nonchalant? Oh, yeah, God, forgive me for that. I blew it again. We'll get it next time. That is not what James is describing. Mourn for it. Humble yourself before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Translated another way, I would say he's saying, do these things in humility and he gives you the victory. He'll exalt you. Now he goes on to the instruction. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. If the law of Christ now is that I'm to love my neighbor as myself, especially my brother or sister in Christ, and I am speaking evil against them, if I'm talking bad about them, if I'm gossiping about them, if I'm tearing them down, what does that, that say? It means 
I think my judgment is better than God's command. I think that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus wouldn't tell me to love this way if he really knew what I knew about this person. Right? You are becoming the judge of the law. You're not a doer of the law. You've become a judge of it. And then James reminds us again. A little subtle threat, to be honest. Probably what disobedient children need. Sorry, Kendall. There. Well, you were looking at me. I don't. You've been in my class. I just do that. Okay. There is only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one. It's God. Right? You know, that one lawgiver, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You you catch the subtle threat? You don't have the power to save or to destroy, but God does. Why would you put yourself up against him? Why would you go up against him in terms of worldliness and being against law? Why would you judge your neighbor? The good news again, let me end in this. God is not going to give up on you. God will jealously, right, guard what he has given to us, his spirit. If you are struggling with sinful desire, if you know that worldliness is, is you're just battling and it's been hard, if you need help, and how to repent. If you have quarrels with a brother or sister in Christ, whether it's in this church or not, and you need help, I'm asking, I'm begging, come talk to one of us. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Pastor Dan. Don't let it get unresolved. Talk about it in your small group. Be open with it. It, I mean... We're all in the same boat, people. We're all in the same boat. We need all the help we can get. Let's pray. God, our Father, it is such a privilege we do and have to call you Father. We are so humbled by the fact that you love us and that you'll fight for us. I pray, God, that we can surrender to your will. That, Father, if we truly are proud, I pray that you would oppose us until we surrender completely to you. Help us to do so. Father, I know that we struggle and a lot of us feel guilty for things that we have done and said to people. I help us to draw near to you in repentance. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us learn to humble ourselves so that you would exalt us and that we might have the victory. Not even for our own sake, but we know, God, it will be good for us.
but Lord, for the sake of your church and for your reputation in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.